When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Welcome to episode two of the Chris Saylor Show. I'm Jerry Price, and I'm here with Princeton head women's lacrosse coach Chris Saylor. Coach, welcome. Thanks, Jerry. It's great to be here. So the first thing we did last week was we talked about what would make a good name for the show? And we went with the Chris Sailor Show. But then I got an email from somebody who said, Smooth Sailoring. Oh, I like, I get that. Yeah, yeah I had uh, some alums who were like, come on, can't you come up with a better title than that? Did they come up with anything? You know, they did, but I'd have to go back to my text <laughs> to see what it was. It was nothing that really grabbed me, but Smooth Sailoring? Not always. <laughs> this weekend it was, as Princeton won two games at the Ivy League Women's Lacrosse Tournament to win the championship and advance to the NCAA Tournament, which will be this Friday at, uh, at Boston College, 4 o'clock start Friday against Syracuse, a team that Princeton lost to 17-16 earlier this season. The winner of that game will get BC. Uh, we got a lot to talk about here today, so you want to start. Well, we'll start with, um, we'll start with, before we get into the games themselves, let's go back to what I actually wrote about in the blog uh, uh, this week about, and I can't remember her name, Francesca Den... Den Hartog. Okay, so she was the Ivy League, the first Ivy League player of the year, 1980 and 1981, Harvard, your teammate. You were a first-team All-Ivy League in 1980 and 1981. Yeah. And then somebody else from Harvard, well, her junior and senior, two different people won the Player of the Year award. Yes. Deservedly, or...? Well, this is the situation. Franny, Franny came in when I was a junior. She was a freshman, and she immediately changed you know, things. She was just so dynamic. Our coach, Carol Kleinfelder, had developed the first plastic set for women, the Brine Cup, and Francesca played with that, and she could just – she was tall, lefty, strong. 
she could finish. I mean, she went on to be a multiple uh, World Cup player. She's in the U.S. Lacrosse National Hall of Fame. But Mo Finn, her classmate, Maureen Finn, was the one who fed her for so many of those goals. So Franny got the award her, her first two years, and then uh, Mo Finn got it um, as a junior. And then I'm not sure quite what happened in the senior year. What was it like back then, women's lacrosse? I mean, we've seen pictures of it, Princeton from the 1970s, and you were at Harvard, uh, you know, graduating in 81. Um, what was what was it like compared to today? Well, I mean, today is just so different because everything that's evolved around the game itself and the professionalization, if you will, of of college athletics. Um, you know, back then, I mean, we were all you know we were all into our sports, but I played two sports at Harvard, and even uh, Courtney will laugh at this, but even a season of JV basketball my first year. Um, you know, and lacrosse season basically started February one. We didn't do anything lacrosse-wise out of season. Um, you know, we still, we played games. We were in tournaments. My senior year, we were 18-0 heading into the Final Four. Um, you know, we played a, a lot of the big teams of that time, the Westchesters or Sinuses, Temples, Maryland's, those, those kinds of schools. Um, but, you know, it was, just, it was just so different. It's not all-encompassing. I remember when Harvard, we got, a Nautil, we got a set of Nautilus, and so we could go down and, and do the Nautilus machines if we wanted to do those. But the things that are commonplace now, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the lifting, the training, the sports psychology, the sports nutrition, I mean, we didn't really have, we didn't have any, any of that. We had film, and, um, you know, but it was mainly what you did for those two hours on the field. And did you find yourself in situations where you had to, you know, fight the administration for things like fields and uniforms and, and yeah. basic stuff? Well, Car Carol was a trailblazer in that way, and she was such a staunch proponent of, of Title IX and, and equity for women in athletics. And even at Harvard, which was pretty advanced at that time, she still had to fight for a lot of things. Um, you know, I remember a lot of great things. I mean, we had practice clothes that got washed every day. We had cleats. We had, you know, a trainer. We had a locker room. We traveled in buses to most most places. You know, we ate at McDonald's, but I think probably everybody did back then, and that was pretty awesome. You could get a shake and fries and a so, cheeseburger, and who wouldn't like that, you know? Bill Carmody always said when he was a basketball coach here to eat at McDonald's because you can go to any McDonald's in the world and know exactly what you're going to get. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but, you know, I think behind the scenes, I know Carol just had to fight a lot to elevate our our program. And I think we were one of the fortunate ones. I remember one year at the coaches convention, there was a panel of women my age and older uh, just talking about their experiences in Title IX. And compared to so many other people there who had gone to what you would consider big-time schools, um, you know, their experience was far different than mine. You know, four in a hotel room, traveling in a station wagon, I mean, you know, washing their own clothes. It was just so different. Um, so I do feel fortunate in a lot of ways, but, you know, everybody was really behind the curve back then. One thing I've talked to Courtney a lot about is I think that one of the great things that she's done here, besides all of the winning, is she has brought male fans into her program. And you know this as well as I do. I mean, you've been yeah. here. You, you remember what it was like to go to a women's basketball game you know, 25 years ago Absolutely. or 20 years ago. It was mothers and daughters. And yeah. to see the extent that uh, male audiences bought into what Courtney's done, I think that's a huge statement. And you know, to see 
your games the other day and how many uh, male athletes were there and male fans were there. I mean, I think it's it's fairly similar. Yeah, I think when you put a great product on the field and, and your kids are athletic and they play hard and tough and, you know, they have success, that all people buy into that and they get excited to see that. Um, and, you know, I think Courtney's done a fantastic job with that. They're following his really incredible. And I think ours, you know, in our sport is is somewhat similar. What about the actual physical way the game is played? So, I mean, still 12 players on the field. Yeah. Uh, the boundaries exist now that didn't then. Uh, oh, yeah. We had, a, we had a center circle and two goal circles, and, and that was it. Um, I think we still had shooting space. That came in when I was there, but there was no arc or fan, no boundaries. And at that time, our field just was so wide. And I remember when someone would throw the ball, it would technically be out of bounds. We just have to run and run for it. I'd be like, are you kidding me? How, how far are we going to have to run for this ball? Or you get to a game and they'd say, well, the boundary is going to be even with that second tree in the distance. You know, there were these invisible boundaries. And, you know, the game has just come so far. Um, I think the boundaries were definitely a big turning point. And a lot of the purists, and I have to say myself included at one time, like we love the hustle plays that were created, racing for the ball on the sideline. But ultimately, that just really rewarded sloppy play. So, you know, I think... I think with the advent of so many of the new rules, people understand the game a little bit better now. Um, it seems more like every other game. You can move on the whistle. There are boundaries. Um, so I think it's easier for the fans to, to figure out. What about the X's and O's of, of when you played versus now? So that you know, you've coached here uh, for a while, and, and the game has clearly evolved. Um, yeah. You know, most people draw on what they knew as a player. Are you able to do that, or do you have to just forget everything that was done when you were when you were a player? I mean, even I mean, that even... was a long time ago, Jerry. When no, I, when no, I but was I mean, a player. But I know I still think the fundamentals of the game in a lot of ways. Defensive. I was a defender. Defensive positioning. Uh, you know, things things evolve, and you have to grow, and you have to stay current, no matter what, no matter what sport. Um, you coach. So, you know, you, you watch a lot of film, you attend conferences, you, you know, talk with your coaches and, and share things at camps. And, you know, you, you get different ideas that you infuse into your program. But by and large, you know, you, you got to put the ball in the cage. And to be honest, there was a point in time in the 90s where the game really changed. Um, you know, when I played, you always kept five people for, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, yeah, five field players stayed out of the attack. You had your two defense wings and your three line defenders, and they might have brought the ball down, but then they left the, the six attackers to play the game. And then in, in the 90s, and Carroll, I think, was the first one who initiated this in the national championship game here at Princeton Stadium. She brought an extra player down to, um, to be on the crease. And so it was really, I think, the first backer in the game. And that ended up bringing more people down into the area. And for a stretch, we played 11 on 11 um, in the attack end and in the D end. And that was kind of crazy to try and find any any space to attack. But then when the restraining lines went in, it kind of brought the game back to how it was originally played. I find all this kind of stuff interesting. And I think that when, you know, looking back at all the history of women's sports at Princeton and how women didn't come here until 1970 and women's sports started shortly after that and just to see the growth of, of women's sports in the early days compared to now and then to hear 
women who played here in the 70s talk about their experiences and contrast them with what happens now. But do your current players, can they relate to some of the things that you went through as a player, or even the, the players who didn't have all the things that you had? Or do they, they've never known any, anything different? I think these kids have really never known anything different. They've grown up in the age where they started playing really young. They just had a lot of, of opportunities. They've been on club teams and competitive high schools. And, um, you know, I think their expectation coming to college is that they're going to have uh, the same experience that their male counterparts are going to have, and they're going to have an excellent athletic experience. And I think that's a good thing. Oh, it should um, be that. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the, the one way where they still recognize a difference is just in probably the promotion of the game um, and, the, you know, the number of fans in the stands. We had a great crowd at the Ivy Tournament, and we have a, a really loyal and vocal fan base and, and following. But when you go, you know, when you have a doubleheader and – you see the stands packed for the men's game and the women's games follows, and it will be equally as exciting as the men's game. And you see so many fans, you know, who depart. I think that that's that's tough to take as an athlete and as a coach. Um, so although the followings have really, you know, stayed strong and, and elevated, it, it's still not where I think it it could be. I mean, we saw that at the women's basketball tournament at the Plester, where the men's final followed by the women's final. But let's talk about the Ivy tournament. Two wins. Uh, the first game against Columbia was 22-16. to This one was not as close. 10 nothing Princeton in the first half. Uh, I think that's probably, you know, no offense to Columbia, I think they might have been just happy to get to the tournament this year and they're trying to build their program forward. But I think you sort of thought that you had a, a pretty good chance of advancing. The final against Penn, seven ties, no lead changes, which means that every time they scored to tie it, you answered. Uh, what do you take away from the, the Ivy tournament? And what's it like playing an Ivy tournament championship game against your big rival, but you're both going to be the Ivy League co-champion no matter what happens, and you're both going to be in the NCAA tournament no matter what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly bragging rights. And, you know, the Ivy the Ivy championship was shared this, this year, and clearly when you're playing an Ivy tournament, you're not going to have to share anything. And so our kids really, we wanted to make a statement on that day. And we knew it wasn't going to be a 21-8 to 8 game. I mean, there's no way... You know that, that you're going to have that same experience again. We knew it was going to be hard fought and competitive to start from start to finish, and you really hit on it. I think the fact that Penn never got the lead is what ultimately allowed us to, uh, well, obviously, ultimately allowed us to win the game. But I think if they had, when they had tied it up, if they had then gone ahead by one or two, it could have been a different outcome. But our kids, you know, our kids competed hard, and we responded to every one of their ties. Let's talk about Kyla Sears for a minute because the whole reason I stumbled upon uh, your former teammate, Fran Franny or Francesca? Oh, Francesca. Francesca. Yes, Fran or Francesca. Okay. That, Franny was my first um, was my first dog. So uh, <laughs> when I say Fran, I always say Franny, but okay. Francesca. Francesca, the reason I stumbled on her is because she's the Ivy League's all-time leader in goals scored in her career, and it's by a large margin. She's the only one who's ever... Uh, she had 245, I think, and she's the only one who's ever been over 200. Kyla Sears has 60 as a freshman. She still has at least one more game. Uh, you know, she's off to an unbelievable start. And you know, when you just multiply 60 times four, it puts you in the neighborhood of, of Ivy League records. Um, but it wasn't just the Kyla Sears show. Uh, it was a really good all-around team effort. I think it's the kind of thing that you were looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kyla has been a force for us since, you know, the first day she stepped on the field and she's been consistently solid in every single one of our games. But if we were a team that just relied on, on Kyla, we'd be so easy to stop. And, you know, I think Syracuse was the only game we've had this season where she's been face guarded and she was still able to get a couple of, uh, 
you know, she got some goals in that game and she was able to open up uh, Tess Orsi and other kids with on-ball picks. Um, so, you know, we've been a, we've been a team that, that has relied not just on Kyla and the fact that, you know, George has become just such a reliable scorer for us. She was the MVP of the tournament. She was the MVP of the tournament. Ellie McNulty has come on strong in the second half of the season. Testa Orsi, you know, she was on fire for the entire tournament. She's been playing great lacrosse down the stretch. You got Allie Rogers. I mean, just we just have a lot. Catherine Howell, you got a lot of kids who can put the ball in the cage. Yeah, when it got to be 10-10, it was uh, Dorsey who scored the two goals and Howell had the last one after that. Yeah. And, so the, the prize now is Syracuse, Princeton yeah. losing 17-16 to Syracuse in the middle of the season. I looked, at, I looked back at that game, 17 players had at least one goal in that game. That has to be close to some sort of record. <laughs> Probably. Um, so they're not a team, I don't, you know, I saw that game, I don't really know much more about them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not a team that has the one superstar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also coached by Gary Gate, who... Mm-hmm. You know, people like to say is probably or is very likely or whatever. He is the greatest men's lacrosse player of all time. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating to me because now he's coaching the women's team. Men's and women's lacrosse are vastly different uh, animals from everything, equipment to number of players on the field to the rules and all that kind of stuff. But he has certainly uh, been able to take his background in lacrosse and have a very positive impact on Syracuse and also... Uh, you know, he's sort of been a driving force in some of the rule changes that have occurred through the year, through the years. I think that have sped yeah, the game think, up. Yeah, and I think just in the development of the game overall, the this the stick skills in particular. You know, when he was at Maryland, he you know helped Cindy Timshaw really just develop phenomenal uh, stick work in those kids, and you know the, the fakes and the release points on the shots, and um, and you see that reflected in a lot of his players at at Syracuse. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be a, a tough game, but we're excited for the challenge. I think for us, the Syracuse game the first time around was really a turning point. We lost that game, but we walked off the field, especially in the second half. We didn't play a great first half. The second half, we played phenomenally. And I think that's when we realized, you know, we really can be a good team and we really can play with the top team. So I think we're excited to have another crack at it. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they choose to defend. They, they played a lot of zone this season. They played us in a, an, in a man with a face guard last time around. So, you know, I think we'll have to be prepared, uh, prepared for both. Do you, I mean, I know you do, I assume you do still have the same excitement level about playing in the NCAA tournament. It's your 25th one. Oh my this God. is why you do it though, to get to Absol- this week. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, maybe in some ways even more just because I appreciate how hard it is to make the NCAA tournament. I mean, women's lacrosse has grown. I think there are 115 Division One schools now. 133. 133. Okay, well, there you go. I was look bad numbers on my part. 133 Division One schools versus probably in the mid 30s when I first came here to Princeton. So it gets you know harder, harder and harder every year when you're talking about all the scholarships and all the talent. There's so much parity in the game right now. And, you know, there were a couple years where we didn't get there. And so I, I really do appreciate how, you know, what a big achievement it is to make the NCAA tournament. And I'm, I'm as excited as ever for it. I actually think that uh, one of the signs of the growth of women's lacrosse is that the women's lacrosse selections actually generated controversy. And people were paying close enough attention that the unanimous number one ranked team in the country is Stony Brook undefeated. They've won every game by at least four goals and they're the five seed. Yeah. And I understand criteria and you've been on the selection committee before. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you understand the criteria as well. Uh, but you know, just the idea that it gets people talking about your sport 
it's it's good for your sport. Absolutely, and you know Stony Brook, they're a, they're a great team. They have two phenomenal scorers in Kylie Allmiller and and Courtney Murphy, uh, and they've had a great year. And and it's hard when you take a team like that and you compare them to, for instance, an an ACC team which is battling day after day with the top teams in the country. And so I think that's where that comes down. It's the strength of schedule, you know, for, with a want maybe one or two losses versus an undefeated but not playing the same caliber of teams day in and day out. I, you know, so everybody's got their opinion on it. I'll leave it to the, the committee. But it's great that people have opinions and talk absolutely, about it. Absolutely. So it's Princeton and Syracuse. That's at 4 o'clock Friday at Boston College. It's just the one game. And then the winner will play the four seed, who's Boston College, that's Sunday at 1. The winner of that advances to the quarterfinals, which most likely would mean Stony Brook, who's the five yes. seed. Um, win or lose, we'll come back next week and, and talk about... Uh, how this week went and, and some other subjects. And uh, also one, of, uh, one thing I wanted to point out is that the first episode of our Chris Saylor show, or Smooth Sailoring, if you want to call it that, <laughs> uh, it actually had, we had a huge feedback, a huge uh, listenership. Uh, and uh, I thought it was pretty good that a lot of people wanted to hear what you had to say. And I, I think uh, uh, it was a really good sign that so many people listened to the first episode. Awesome. So for Princeton women's lacrosse head coach Chris Saylor, first of all, good luck to you and the Tigers. Uh, I'm Jerry Price. Thank you for joining us here on the Chris Saylor Show, and thank you for your support of Princeton women's lacrosse. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at, and olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. All state vehicle and property insurance company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.